Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from this series, Seven. In the book of Revelation, John records Jesus' message to seven churches, speaking to them words of rebuke, exhortation, and encouragement. Though these letters were written in the first century, Jesus is still speaking through them to us today. Today's text is going to be um, Revelation 3, 14 to 22. You are going to be able to follow along up on the screens, but if uh, this morning with the Get Connected card, we're doing something new. You received a little uh, kind of little booklet that's got the text on it. That was something somebody had asked us for, and uh, we appreciate the suggestion. So it'll be there, and there's space for you to take notes if you would like as well. Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22, I'm going to be using... Uh, the NIV, the, the 1984 version this morning. Again, you can follow along. Hear now the word of the risen king. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot, I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. You do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. This is the most famous of the seven letters. We've been looking at these letters for seven weeks, and undoubtedly, this is the one that people are most familiar with. The idea of Jesus saying, I'm going to spit you or vomit you out of my mouth. Many people, even if they don't go to church, they're kind of aware of that thing of lukewarm water being spit out of the mouth. And in fact, there's a, there's a painting of Jesus that was very famous. We'll put it up here on the screen. Uh, this painting of Jesus at the door, uh, which was by William Holman Hunt, and it's been kind of recreated many different times. Uh, but this painting was very, very famous, and most of us have seen some version of that. And even more so, the idea of Jesus knocking at the door of your heart. And I can put on my good Southern voice, because if you're going to be an evangelist using that, you gotta, you got to have your Southern accent. And so we, we're all familiar with that, right? Uh, we, we can hear Billy Graham using that phrase and others using that phrase of Jesus knocking at the door to your heart. Oh, sinner, will you open the door? But the interesting thing is, though this is clearly the letter that is most well-known, 
do we really understand it? Or have we taken some images and not really understood what they meant, and even sometimes use them not necessarily in ways that are against the text, but use them in ways that it wasn't really what Jesus was speaking to his church in Laodicea. Well, let's dive into the text and find out. Now, Jesus is speaking to his church in Laodicea. Where is Laodicea? Well, it's, uh, if you notice there, he's got it in Revelation 3.14, and it's about 45 miles southeast of Philadelphia, which puts it around Dover. No, it's uh, <laughs> the other Philadelphia, the one that was in Turkey, uh, not, our, not our Philadelphia. And it's about 100 miles east of Ephesus. And it's a close city, close sister city, with two other cities in the area, Hierapolis and Colossae. Colossae is the the city to which Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians. And in fact, he tells us in Colossians 4.16, he says, I want the letter I'm writing to you Colossians to be read in Laodicea. And I wrote a letter to the Laodiceans and I want you to get it and read it. But we don't know what that letter is. Some scholars have thought it was the letter to the Ephesians because in the earliest uh, examples, the, the letter to Ephesus doesn't actually have the city name listed and Ephesus and Colossians are very close, but I doubt that. I don't think that's really the case, and there's there's no proof for that. It was just kind of an idea, but we know that there was a letter to the church at Laodicea, and what's interesting is for Christians, we may know Colossae more because we have the letter to Colossians, but Laodicea was the major city of the three because it was built at a major crossroads. There are two major roads that run down basically from Pergamum to Thyatira to Saras to Philadelphia to Laodicea, you can see kind of the valley there. There was a major road that ran that way, and there was one that ran from Ephesus to Laodicea the other way. And when Laodicea was built, it wasn't built because there were natural resources there, like most cities are built, or it was close to water. It was built because there were two major crossroads. And they said, well, we should have a city here. And it really grew, and it became extremely wealthy because it was on these roads. It was a major banking and finance center, It was famous because it had a lot of sheep. It's a great valley right there for the sheep to feed. But what they became well-known for was their sheep had black wool. They had genetically bred them, and they had black wool. And so the wool from those sheep was used in all kinds of clothing around the whole area in the world, and they were famous for that. And thirdly, they had a medical school. And the medical school was associated with the entire area here made an eye salve. It was called Phrygian eye salve because this whole area was Phrygia. And it was used to treat maladies in people's eyes. So Laodicea is famous for being wealthy. They are famous for producing wool and clothing. And they are famous for producing eye salve to help other people with their eyes and their problems. We'll come back to that. Uh, There was one problem, however. Because it was built on those major crossroads, it lacked one major thing that usually you built cities around. And that was it did not have a water source. There was nowhere to get water. In fact, what they had to do was they had an aqueduct that brought water five miles from the south all the way up to the city. And I could have shown you pictures. We've actually found the aqueducts now. And what's interesting about them is the aqueducts are calcified because the water was so bad that they brought into Laodicea, there were all of these minerals that made the water famous for being bad. It was not good water. The water was lukewarm, 
It was full of minerals, and that was one of the few complaints about living in Laodicea is the water was just not good. Now, Jesus, the sovereign one, is going to speak to this church. In Revelation 3.14, he speaks to them, and he does something a little unusual. He says, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. But if you've watched all the other letters begin with a vision of who Jesus is that goes back to Revelation 1, and they'll say things like, this is the one whose eyes are like fire, whose legs are burnished bronze, out of whose mouth comes forth. And it's these visions. Only Laodicea is not given a vision of who Jesus is. We just get a series of titles. And the titles are kind of interesting. It begins with, these are the words of the amen. Now, the word amen uh, in Greek, like in English, is actually just a transliteration of the Hebrew word. It's not originally a Greek word. It comes from a Hebrew word, ultimately a Hebrew word, amuna, which means something is true, it is reliable, it is trustworthy is what the word amen originally meant. It meant something that was firm, reliable, true, and trustworthy. And so Jesus here, in essence, because he's actually quoting out of the book of Isaiah, as in almost every one of these deal with taking a word of Yahweh in the Old Testament, and Jesus now says, I'm Yahweh. I am the true God, and here's what I say. Well, God was called the amen in the book of Isaiah, but Jesus here is basically translating it for Greek speakers who may have kind of lost the original meaning and saying, look, to be the amen means I am faithful. It means I am true. I am trustworthy and reliable. And so when he's the amen, the faithful and true witness, it's basically just explaining what it means to be the amen. And it says he's also the ruler over God's creation. The word ruler in the Greek, it's uh, the word arche, and it can mean the beginning it can mean the first of something, or it can mean the ruler over it. Because if you were the first person of the city, you were the ruler of the city. It can mean any one of those. And so it could be the ruler of God's creation, or it could be the beginning or first of God's creation, not in the sense of Jesus is a created being, because he's not. It's really talking here about the new creation. And for example, in the letter to the Colossians, it speaks of Jesus being the firstborn from among the dead, that he might have preeminence in everything. He not only created all things, but even when you go into the new creation, he says, and in the new creation, we've all been raised from the dead, and I'm the first in that. I not only created you, I'm the first one to be raised from the dead. And that's probably what he's getting at here. And so these titles to Laodicea are stressing that Jesus, the one who is speaking, was faithful to the Father and to his word. And he has now entered and rules over the new creation. And he's going to speak to the church at Laodicea in those terms. I am faithful. I am true. I have kept the Father's word. And I have now entered into the new creation. And I'm calling you as my church to the same. So what's he going to speak to Laodicea? What is his word? Well, we begin to get in Revelation 3, 15, and 16, and if we followed along, what would we expect from most of the letters? I know your deeds, and let me praise you for what you've done well, and correct you for what you've done wrong. But that's not what we get. What we get is this word of rebuke. I know your deeds. You're neither cold nor hot. 
Jesus begins immediately with the word of rebuke. And what's interesting is one other letter began this way. That was the letter to Sardis, the dead church. But later on, Jesus said, but look, at least there are some of you. There's a few of you in Sardis that are doing okay. Only one of the seven churches gets no word of praise for anyone. And that's Laodicea. There's nothing positive said about this church at all. And in fact, the rebuke is an unbelievable rebuke because what Jesus tells them there is, you're, you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other, because, but because you're lukewarm, neither hot or cold. And he comes to this thing and he says, I get this feeling. Okay, picture this. He's speaking to his bride. When I think of you, I get this warm feeling inside. The feeling you get right before you throw up. That's the feeling I've got towards you all. When I think about you, Laodicea, it makes me sick. I want to throw up. I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. And the reason is you are lukewarm. You're lukewarm water. And I, and I wish, he says, you were either hot or cold, but, but you're not. You're neither one of those, you're just lukewarm. And this is an allusion to the lukewarm, poor quality water in Laodicea because Colossae had nice, cold water. Just a few miles away, you could drink that water at Colossae right as they had it. It came right from a nearby river and they drank that water and it was great. In uh, Laodicea, you could look and you could see white cliffs up at Hierapolis because it was famous for its hot springs that were full of minerals where people came to sit and soak in the hot springs and receive cure from their ailments. And Jesus says, but see, you're neither one. If I want a cold drink, I can go to Colossae. If I want piping hot water in which to take a bath, I can go to Hierapolis but I come to you and you're neither one. You're not cold, you're not hot, you're just lukewarm. And therefore, in essence, you're good for nothing. And this was done, the people lay out of sea, this was not a surprise to them, that's what they thought of their own water. So he's using the analogy that would fit for them. And that leads to the question then, What's the root problem? What is it that he means by saying they are lukewarm? Well, there's two options that are thought of. One of them is that lukewarm means you have a lukewarm faith. There is a lack of zeal. And we think of this because that metaphor makes sense to us. If I say somebody's lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, you say, well, that's because they're just kind of tepid. There's nothing... There's nothing zealous about what they're doing. And in fact, a couple of times in the New Testament, cold or hot are used in this way. I won't turn there now, but Jesus in Matthew 24, 12 speaks of people's love growing cold. And in Romans chapter 12, verse 11, he speaks about having a zeal, a hotness, because the word for hot here is related to, it's not the same word, but it's similar to the word zeal. And so, uh, and Jesus is going to actually tell them to be zealous or earnest and repent in verse 19. He's going to speak and say that to him. So some people look and they say, look, 
Jesus says the problem is you're neither cold nor hot. The problem is you are lukewarm. And so I'm going to spit you out of my mouth because you're lukewarm. And so the problem is you have a lukewarm, tepid, not hot faith. However, I don't think that's actually what Jesus is getting at. It's one of the areas where I think we misunderstand the letter. And here's why I say that. The real problem is not lack of zeal. The problem is Laodicea is self-sufficient. They don't think they need Jesus. They might have grown lukewarm, tepid in their faith, but that's only because of their self-sufficiency. Now, why do I say that? First off, though it makes sense to us, we really don't have any examples from the ancient world of lukewarm being used for somebody lacking zeal. That's just not a metaphor they used back then. In fact, we oftentimes use it because we misunderstood this letter, I think, and it's become a metaphor for us, but we don't really have examples of them using that. And even speaking of things being hot and cold to reveal love or lack of love or whatever else is very, very rare. I gave you pretty much all the examples that are in the New Testament of it. It's not a common metaphor. But even more than that, notice in verses 15 and 16 here, Jesus says, I wish you were either cold or hot. So would Jesus be saying, look, your problem is you're you're just kind of lukewarm in your zeal. I wish you were absolutely cold towards me. That doesn't really make sense. And we try to say, well, it's better if somebody's absolutely cold towards Jesus than kind of halfway there. And we can try to make it. But he's not even saying because you're doing that. He just says, I wish you were cold. That would be better. I mean, if you're cold, I can drink the water, like in Colossae. Or you could be hot, but what you are is you are neither one. And then thirdly, and I've put up here uh, verse 17, I put it up in the English Standard Version because they've actually captured what the Greek says a little bit better. Notice in verse 17, he says, for you say, this is how you're lukewarm, because you say, or for you say, the NIV dropped that out. You can still kind of see it there in the thing, but other translations keep it, and it's right there in the Greek. There's no question it's there. Here's how you're lukewarm. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. That's your lukewarmness right there. That's what makes me sick. You think you're all that in a bag of chips. You think you don't need me. And that is lukewarmness. And that makes me sick. And notice how he goes on where he's going to say, I counsel you to buy from me. His correction to them is not, I counsel you to get hot in your faith. I counsel you, you got to come to me. You don't think you need me, but I'm telling you, you do need me. And in fact, we're going to see he's going to directly critique the very areas where Laodicea took pride in its own self. The city around them was taking pride and the church was following in for that. And so the cure in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me, is a cure for self-sufficiency, not for lack of zeal. And so for all of these reasons, I don't think the problem is that they are lacking zeal. They may be, but that is a fruit The root, the real problem Jesus is driving at is you don't think you need me. You think you are self-sufficient. So notice here their self-sufficiency as he describes it. Starting in verse 17, he says, because you think, you say, I 
am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Rock of ages, I'm my own cleft. When I come to the cross, I bring all this stuff with me because look what I can do. That's what the church is saying. They think they are rich and prosperous and have need of nothing. We're going to see what Jesus says their actual state is in just a minute. But what I want you to see is he's telling them, church, you have drank from the self-sufficiency of the place where you live. Now, this should start to scare you. Because, friends, you live in Laodicea. If there's any one of these cities that America is like, it is this city. I am rich. I am prosperous. I need nothing. And the city of Laodicea is famous for that. In fact, in 60 AD, there was a massive earthquake that had devastated the city. You remember Jared talked about that last week in Philadelphia. This whole area is full of earthquakes. It is all the way down to today. But here's what happened in Laodicea. The city was devastated, and so Rome did what Rome usually did. They came in, and they said, we will provide for you. We're going to give you money. They had their own equivalent of FEMA, like we have today. So Rome did like, it would be like after Katrina, the U.S. government showing up to New Orleans and Laodicea had so much money, they said, we don't need it. You can take care of the other cities. We got this. And they rebuilt the city on their own. And they were famous for that. We don't need Rome. We got this. We got the money. We can take care of ourselves, which is not necessarily a bad thing when it comes to rebuilding your city, but Jesus is saying, and you all have drank that. And now you think that way towards me. You think that you are rich, and in fact, you clothe other people. And when other people have problems with their eyesight, they come to you. You are the source. You have the money, you are the source. You make clothing. You are the source. You fix their eyesight. And that's what you think of yourself. And church, you think like the city where you dwell. Jesus says, I'm going to give my own diagnosis. Let me tell you what I see when I look at you. What I see is that you are actually wretched and pitiable. He's going to give five adjectives here. The first two, wretched and pitiable, are kind of an overall description. Okay, And then he's going to drive into three specific ones because of Laodicea's specific thoughts and strengths. And he says, so right off the bat, you think you're something. I'm telling you, your, your condition is wretched. Your condition is to be pitied. You think you're the pride of the place. You ought to be pitied. And here's why. Because you were actually poor, you were actually blind, and you were actually naked. You think you're rich. You rebuilt your city after the earthquake. But I'm telling you, you are actually poor. And if you remember, I mentioned earlier when we did the church at Smyrna, that was poor because they were refusing to join in the emperor worship. And so the Christians there had been cut out of the economic system. 
And so they were poor. And the wor- I mentioned that there were two Greek words for poverty. One meant you're just kind of barely getting by. And the other one meant you had nothing. Kokos. That's the word that's used here. The same word that the Smyrnians actually had. And what Jesus is saying is, see, you're the opposite of Smyrna. In Smyrna, they are actually tokos. They are actually living in abject poverty, but I see them as rich. Well, you Laodiceans are living in the lap of luxury, but I'm looking and you're not just barely getting by. You are poverty-stricken spiritually. Secondly, you are blind. Yeah, I know you've got a medical school. I know you make the eyes salve that everybody else is putting on their eyes, but I'm telling you, you're blind. And third, yes, I know about your sheep. I know they make this fine wool that everybody else uses for their clothing, but you're buck naked. You're standing before me naked. That's where you are spiritually. And so the church had become like Laodicea, convinced of its self-sufficiency rather than seeing its poverty and its deep need of Christ and His sufficiency. Does this sound like any church you can think of? See, this letter is so applicable to the American church. So applicable to us. Now, Jesus then gives the solution. And the solution again lines up not with dealing with lukewarm, lack of zeal faith, but with self-sufficiency. Notice what he tells us is the solution is sufficiency in Christ. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. It's the same three areas you have prided yourself in, but your stuff doesn't work. You you may have money in the bank down the road, but it can't buy you righteousness. You may be making clothing for everyone, but there's even a little bit of a play on words here, but it's the wrong color because the, the, the color in heaven is white robes. You're making black robes for everybody. They, they can't cover you in either case, no matter what you're making. It can't clothe you with my righteousness. And you may be making eyes salve for other people, but the whole time you can't see me. You are poor, you are blind, you are naked, and the solution is not in yourself. You have to come to me to find it. Now, the reality is this applies to all humanity. Man, this is not just Laodicea. We want to find our sufficiency within, in our own resources, and in our own works. But the gospel says our only sufficiency is found outside of us, in Christ. There is no resource within. We are all friends living in Laodicea. You were born in Laodicea, and so was I. And we are, our gospel is always about what I bring to the table. 
But if you're going on what you bring to the table, or I'm going on what I bring to the table, we are going to find ourselves starving. We are going to find ourselves naked. We are going to find ourselves poor and blind and having nothing to commend us before a holy God. And Jesus is telling them, you have drank of this and and you're finding your sufficiency in the wrong place. And what a temptation. See, this was not a temptation in Smyrna because they were poor. They were wearing raggedy clothes. They had nothing to commend them. They were cut off. And so they were finding their riches and their life in Christ. But see, in Laodicea, they had not become, they are, there is no word here about them falling under persecution. They are living free and easy, and everything seems good. And of all of the churches, if you went and traveled around and looked at the situation, you and I would have said, I want to live in Laodicea. I don't want to be down there in these other places, man. I mean, these Christians are under it. And Jesus said, Here's the outcome of that. You have forgotten where your sufficiency is. You're losing the gospel is what you are losing. So Jesus then issues a call of love. And we come to this famous image, which we have also misunderstood. Revelation 3, 19 and 20. Jesus says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Now, You've probably never heard this, but there are some people in America who teach, if you are really doing well and Jesus is really loving you, what's your life like? It's just everything is great, right? Except for that's not what Jesus says. See, what Jesus says is, if you're being rebuked and disciplined, I love you. And if I'm letting you continue on your way, that's a sign I don't love you. Now, think about this, because Jesus is actually here quoting again. This is another, this is one of the things I love reading these letters. You know, we, we have, there are other cultic groups out there that want to deny the deity of Christ, and they do weird things with one or two verses. You can have those one or two verses. I would never debate John 1.1 with the Jehovah Witnesses. I don't need to, because Jesus is constantly going over his deity. Here's another place in this verse. Why do I say that? Proverbs 3, 11, and 12 is what he's quoting. My son, do not despise Yahweh's discipline, the Lord's discipline, and do not resent his rebuke because Yahweh, the Lord, disciplines those he loves. And Jesus says, I, the risen one, Yahweh, in the flesh, Eternal God, I'm telling you, what I told you in Proverbs is still true. If I love you, I rebuke and discipline you. As a father, the son, he delights in. When I disciplined my four children, it was not a sign that I did not love them, but that I did. I watched all other kinds of little heathen kids running around that I never disciplined. Why? They're not mine. I don't love them. It's not my responsibility to care for them. But my children... It was my responsibility to care for. And therefore, I did rebuke them. I did discipline them. And so Jesus here, speaking as Yahweh, is telling them, look, I'm rebuking you, not because I don't love you, but because I do love you. 
And if I did not correct you, if I let you go on, you would wind up on judgment day standing in front of me and discover that you are poor and you are blind and you are naked. And I love you, church. I love you as my people, and so I will not let that happen. And so he tells him, so because I love you, because I'm speaking this, here's what I want you to do. Be earnest and repent. Not be earnest because you've been lacking zeal, but I want you to earnestly repent. I want you to see the position that you are in. His love calls us to repent of self-sufficiency, and here is why. Self-sufficiency is self-destructive. That's the bottom line for us. You were not designed by your creator to be self-sufficient. Okay, you know when you buy something and it tells you, here's how the manufacturer says to use this? Okay, and if you've ever noticed, I remember sitting in a, a class at the Naval Academy, one that they had made me take on, on legal stuff, and I discovered, you know, you ever look at the ridiculous things on things? Like, you ever seen the lawnmower where it says, you know, not to be used for, like, trimming hedges? Whenever you see those, it's because some idiot attempted that. That's why it's there. Hey, got to trim the hedges. I'll just pick the lawnmower up. What could go wrong with this? Right? Okay? But spiritually, that's exactly what we've all done. And Jesus is saying, not how you were designed. Warning label, don't do this. Going to be destructive for you. And I'm telling you because, wow, that's a bad idea. Okay? That's what he is doing to them. And he's, he's telling us, repent of your self-sufficiency because it's self-destructive. It's going to ruin you. It's going to destroy you. Your sufficiency is found in me. And I am more than enough. You will find more than you can possibly want or need. And so then Jesus comes to this, this thing in verse 20, and notice, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. Who's he speaking to? The church. This isn't I'm out speaking in the pagan marketplace. I'm speaking to the church. And I'm knocking, and I'm saying, Laodicea, don't know if you've noticed, you really had an impressive meeting this morning. All kinds of stuff going on. I heard about it. I wasn't there, but I heard about it. Because I was standing outside knocking. The interesting thing, that painting I showed earlier, if you notice, there's no door handle on the door. And there's vines all grown around because he was trying to represent the church at Laodicea. And Jesus is saying, look, I'm standing here and knocking. But you remember in every other letter, I call you to repent, but if you don't, because he calls his people to walk in this, and he says, I'm calling for you to repent, but in essence, that painting is right. The, the door is on the inside. I'm telling you, you are heading down a path of self-destruction. And he promises renewed communion if they repent. He tells us that there will be renewed communion with us if we will repent of our self-sufficiency. And friend, just as a sideline, when we are feeling distant from God, one of the first things we ought to check is, how close am I feeling to Jesus? How close am I feeling? I, I'd gone through some you know, tough times uh, at, at one period, and I was talking to my and friends were asking me, well, how, how are you doing? I said, it's been, it's been tough. But the funny thing is, I feel closer to Jesus than ever. Probably because I feel like I was flung off the side of a ship, and there are like 
100-foot waves going all around. And yes, I am clinging to the life raft here. I got that ring, and I'm not letting go. But you know what? Oftentimes, when I think the waters are calm, I just kind of swim off on my own. See, And very often, when we are feeling like God is distant, one of the first things we need to ask is, am I feeling self-sufficient? Because, man, this is our bent. It is the way we want to go. How can I do what I am doing? And so Jesus here is saying, I'm offering myself to any who will turn away from themselves because only in denying ourself and our self-sufficiency can we find communion with Him. I can't come to the table and say, this is about communion with myself. I come to the table because of what I bring. Coming to the table is a statement, I don't bring anything except my sin, my brokenness, my rebellion. That's what I bring. He brings Himself. And He gives Himself to us. So, let's apply the Word and we will come to the Lord's table. Jesus' Word. The first thing it would say to us is, have I ever turned from self to Christ? Verse 20, those words that I said, you know, if we've never heard, you know, Jesus is speaking on the door, knocking at the door of your heart. That's not what they were originally meant for, but they certainly are possible to apply that way. I understand why it's done. It does have a secondary application. Please hear me. The gospel of America is the gospel of self-sufficiency. You have not only been born with this from Adam, but you have been reared on this. You have sucked on this from the moment of birth. The gospel of self-sufficiency. Al Mohler, a few years ago, I was at a conference. I'll never forget him saying this. He said this, most Americans believe that their problem is something that happened to them from outside and the solution is from within. They think they have an alien problem with an inner solution. But the gospel declares we have an inner problem that only can have an alien outside solution. Your solution stares back at you, I mean, your problem stares back at you from the mirror every morning. So does mine. I'm going to wake up tomorrow, go in there and say, oh, that looks rough. And then, if I could see inside, say, oh, that looks even worse. But thanks be to God, the gospel says there is a solution, but it's not found within. It's not found in my sufficiency. It's found in Christ's sufficiency. Are we looking within or are we looking outside to Christ? The fact is, whoever you are, I don't care if you're born to Bill and Melinda Gates, you are born poor, you are born spiritually blind, and you are born naked before a holy God. Every one of us. That is our condition. So, do I try and solve that from within? Do I try and quick mix my own little fig leaves? Or do I look outside and say, I can't fix this problem? Have you ever looked to Christ? Because in Him there are true riches and great sight 
and all the clothing that you need. And the good news, I won't take the time to go into it, but this is, there's an illusion here when Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me. Well, how do you buy if you are poor? Well, you buy because come, everyone who lacks money, come, buy, and eat the richest affair, Isaiah 55. What God is offering to you is free. The only cost is admit you have no right to the banquet. Admit you are utterly insufficient. And if we do that, the banquet is free. The clothing is free. Your blindness will be healed. You will be raised from the dead. But if you cling to your own sufficiency, you'll remain poor and blind. Second question, and then the table. As a believer, if you're here and you say, well, yes, but I, I have done that. I've understood that. Remember, Jesus is speaking to the church at Laodicea. This is the church. So, so they would have said, yes, I've done all of that. Yeah, Billy Graham, I opened the door. But Jesus is speaking to them because they've been seduced to self-sufficiency rather than Christ's sufficiency. They had started one way and swapped to another. And so the rebuke is to the church that Jesus had shut out. And this is a consistent struggle for believers and the church to look within for our riches rather than to Christ. And I say again, if there is any one of the cities we are living in, friends, it is Laodicea. I don't care if you live in Philly up the road. You live in Laodicea if you live in America. Because this is our tendency. We are trained to look within, to believe in our own abilities, and to minimize our need for Christ. We think there is a formula we can control for everything in life. We are always looking for the formula that puts me back in control. I remember when, when we were newlyweds, Linda and I, she, she was struggling with bad headaches back then, and we were in Okinawa, and I had like a 27-part formula from the Bible that if we did all of these things, it was going to get her healed. Because ultimately, who had to be in charge? Us. And so I would tell her, God says you got to raise your hands and shout and do all this kind of crazy stuff that she should have hit me, but she didn't because she's got many jewels in her crown. <laughs> and we kept trying to do it and kept trying to do it until we finally gave up and said, I can't figure the formula out. And then suddenly God started healing her of headaches. Because we were learning the point, I'm not in charge. There is no formula. Life does not work that way. But see, we've done it down. Even Charles Finney, who many Americans revere, even though he was a heretic, said, revival is no more a miracle than a crop of wheat. I've got the right principle. If you follow my formula, revival. Really? I didn't know Jesus had gotten off the throne and put you on it. I didn't know it worked that way. But that's what we believe. You just do the right techniques. We are all about technique and formula. Jesus is all about us realizing we don't have sufficiency. And we need Him. We think you can get church growth. You can get fulfillment. Just do the right thing and you can guarantee results. 
but revival and church growth is given by God as He wills. And true fulfillment is not found in a formula, it's found in intimacy with Jesus. That's where fulfillment's found. There is no formula for that. It's knowing and loving and serving Him. David Wells, in a book called God in the Wasteland, said this, the fundamental problem in the evangelical world, thus, today is not an adequate technique, insufficient organization, antiquated music, and those who want to squander the church's resources bandaging these scratches will do nothing to staunch the flow of blood that is spilling from its true wounds. The fundamental problem in the evangelical world today, is that God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. His truth is too distant. His grace is too ordinary. His judgment is too benign. His gospel is too easy. His Christ is just too common. That's the evangelical church. Because we live in Laodicea. We have lowered God, and we have raised ourselves. But he's really not that much greater than we are. You see, Jesus is the amen. He is the faithful, and he is the true, and he is the ruler over all things. Friends, God is nothing like you and I. Nothing like you and I. And all of us, at best, make a small start holiness in this life. And on that day, when we stand before the throne in judgment, you are not going to have a plea for what you've done. You're going to see how silly all of our stuff was. And on that day, we're going to say, I want to be robed in the righteousness of Christ. Not the, not the stuff I made. I realize I have been blind. I realize I bring nothing to the table. And Jesus says, Realize that today. Know it now. Begin it now. And so, it may even be that lack of zeal comes. Friends, lack of zeal is rooted in this other problem. If we realize how insufficient we are and how sufficient He is, zeal won't be a problem. But if He's not really the, the, the root of my if the root of my problems is not me and the solution is not Jesus, then it's hard to be zealous for him. I've got to keep stirring it back up somehow because I don't realize how badly I need him. So as we come to the table this morning, do I have a high view of myself and my abilities? Do I have too low a view of Christ and his glory and his sufficiency? Because this is what it means to be a believer. That I recognize all the sufficiency I ever need, I will ever need, found in the one who is broken for me. Because if we don't recognize that, we're going to be poor, and blind, and naked. And I tell you what it will also do for you and me is, you'll be on a constant quest, and so will I, to try and fill the voids and the lack that are there by sucking it out of everybody else. We're not made to be this way. It's like picking up that lawnmower and I'm going to trim the hedges. It's a complete, broken, wrong, backwards way. But if we'll say, my sufficiency is 
What I need is found in him. I'm free to serve you. I'm going to suck everything I can get out of you. I can serve because my sufficiency is found in him. So as you come to the table this morning, I want to encourage you. Whatever lack of finding your sufficiency in him is there, wherever God has spoken to you and convicted you this morning, let's confess that to him this morning and look to him for sufficiency. I also want to remind us this meal is for believers. If you have never said, my sufficiency is in Christ and him alone, I'd encourage you just to let it pass because eating this is a statement. I have no righteousness of my own. Only Christ's death and burial and resurrection. That's my only hope for salvation. If you believe that, please join with us. For what I received from the Lord, I pass on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. For in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus, as we come to this table this morning, we recognize that our only sufficiency is in you. Lord, as we eat, this is our statement in the very eating. You are sufficient, and we are utterly insufficient. But we believe that through your broken body and shed blood, we who are poor can be rich, we who are blind can see, we who are naked can be clothed with the very righteousness of Christ. We ask that you'd meet us by the Spirit and feed us this morning. In Jesus' name. As you get the elements, please hold on to them. We will take them together in just three or four minutes. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love. Promise. Lord Jesus, as we hold this bread this morning, we are reminded that despite all of our pretenses, all of our claims to our own righteousness and our own sufficiency, this bread is broken because your body was broken. Not because we were sufficient, but because we were insufficient. Not because we were rich, but because we were in abject poverty. Not because we saw, but because we were blind not because we were clothed, but because we were naked. And so, Lord, this morning we hold this body representing your blood 
and we confess our own insufficiency. We hold this bread this morning confessing we are poor, we are blind, we are naked. And Lord, we could never come before you by our own works. And so in taking this, your broken body, we repent of our own attempt at self-sufficiency and we look to you. And we say, forgive, cleanse, purify, heal, and clothe. For you alone are sufficient. Take But Jesus, our prayer does not end with our own insufficiency. For as we hold this cup, we are reminded of the power of your blood. That by your blood you have cleansed not those who were righteous, but those who were unrighteous. Not just those from the people of Israel, but people from every tribe and language. Not just the people of the first century, but people from all the millennia. Because your blood is more than enough. Your righteousness is more than all of us could ever need. And because, Jesus, in holding this cup, we profess that God made you who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in you we might become the very righteousness of God. As we take this cup, Lord, we profess you are sufficient. Lord, that where we are poor, you have made us rich, inheritors of God himself, heirs of the kingdom. That, Lord, where we were blind, Lord, you have given us eyes to see, and we shall behold the face of God. And, Lord, where we were naked because of our sin, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ and invited to the banquet of God. And all of this has been done at your expense, O Christ, and not ours. And so we receive this morning the very grace and mercy of God that has taken us from being your enemies to your children, from those who had hated you to now your very heirs, the objects of your love. And so, Lord, all we say this morning is thanks be to God for the blood of Jesus Christ. Take Spirit of the living God, I pray that this week as we go forward, you would remind us these words and the grace you have worked in us at this table would be fresh and new for us this week. And when the gospel of America, the gospel of our self-sufficiency rises up, would you rise up within us, Spirit of the living God? Would we hear what the Spirit says to the church and say, no, I am insufficient, but Christ is more than sufficient for me? Would we reject the false gospels of this age and embrace the good 
news that Jesus has lived for us. He has died for us. He is raised for us. And he ever intercedes for us. And he has made us more than conquerors because of what he has done in our place. Spirit of the living God, work that in us this week, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. I'm going to conclude this series with the opening benediction that John gives at the beginning of this letter. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the Holy Spirit before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over all the kings of the earth who has loved you and has freed you and I from our sins by his blood. Go in the peace of Jesus Christ. Amen. See everyone Friday night. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.